Welcome to Scam This. Here we go again. It's time to meet another Greek letter, Omicron. It's the latest COVID variant of concern, but how concerned should we be? We called up a doctor to get the answer to that and your other Omicron questions. This was also a historic and possibly infamous week at the Supreme Court, as justices heard oral arguments in the most important abortion case since Roe v. Wade. We'll play some tape from what went down and ask an expert about the future of abortion rights. We'll also hit the week's other big headlines, including the start of Ghislaine Maxwell's trial in New York and a big policy change at Twitter. And finally, the royal family viewed through a horror lens, thick Italian accents and fur coats, and two tennis stars' intense training regimen. We'll chat with film critic Esther Zuckerman about three new Hollywood releases we need to be watching. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Sometimes you see a headline and it's all you have time to read before going back to work or to bed. But when the topic is really important, like life or death important with this new Omicron variant, headlines don't really tell the full story. So wouldn't it be nice if you could just call up a doctor friend and be like, Hey, did you guys read that thing in the New Yorker last month about how gone? I read somewhere. I think it was an NPR. Did you read that thing in Mother Jones about... I I read somewhere. Did you read that thing that guy wrote in the sand on the beach? Yeah. Luckily for us, we have that doctor friend, Dr. Nomanje Bumpus. She's a professor and the director of the Department of Pharmacology and Molecular Sciences at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. We're just struggling to understand all of these headlines about Omicron, and we're hoping you can help us out. I first want to ask you, is it Omicron or Omicron? Omicron, even though I've heard people say that actually may not be um, accurate either if you're actually someone who speaks the language, but Omicron. Okay, good to know. So our first headline is from CNBC, and it says, WHO labels new COVID strain named Omicron a variant of concern. Now, our audience knows that viruses mutate all the time and that new strains are to be expected, but what makes something a variant of concern? So a variant of concern because, one, based on what we know about the virus and other variants, it can be envisioned that this variant could potentially be more transmittable, for instance. We still have to test that and find out, but based on what we know, there's the potential that there could be some difference you'd see with this variant. Also, even though we still need to really dive into the epidemiology, you know, this variant was detected at a time where cases were increasing in South Africa, and there could be a link. We have to take some time and determine that. But when you have those in conjunction, it makes it something that we need to watch, a variant of concern. Our next headline is from the Wall Street Journal, and I think it kind of gets to the confusion over how afraid of Omicron we should be. And it says, Omicron risks infecting vaccinated people, but may not cause them severe illness. Can you help me translate this and what we know about Omicron's severity, if we know anything? So we don't know about its severity. What we do know so far, at least if you look, you know, we have now detected it in the U.S. and that has been in individuals reported to be vaccinated. So it seems that there is infection of people who are vaccinated, at least for the individual in California. They have reported that the symptoms were mild and that's been reported at other places in the world. I think we certainly need to wait and see. But the vaccines, we still do have confidence protect against severe cases and deaths, certainly. And even though more research is needed to look at the 
ability to protect this particular variant, we fully expect protection specifically against severe disease and death. I'm curious, when are we going to have more information about Omicron and vaccine efficacy? And like, how are we going to get that information in the first place? Yeah, so I think that information and data will start to emerge over the next few weeks. We certainly, as more sequencing is done, we find out more, you know, who's infected with this variant, we'll understand more about people being vaccinated versus not and the kind of rate of infection. But in addition, laboratory-based studies will be done. So in the next few weeks, we'll certainly start to learn more. I want to get to a headline from The Washington Post, and it says, Biden to push boosters for all adults as Omicron is detected. I personally think this could be a little confusing since we've heard from Pfizer and Moderna that they're going to be releasing updated vaccines and boosters for Omicron. And I'm just curious what you would tell our audience about whether or not we should hold off on boosters until we can get these updated ones. Or if I get a booster now, I'm getting mine tomorrow. Could I still get an updated one if that's an option in a few months? Yeah, so variant specific boosters will definitely take some time. With the technology used, they are possible and should work well and be efficacious, but it will take some time to develop. So it's important now for people to get the boosters that are available once they're eligible. We'll have to see how things play out. There is a possibility that we'll get these boosters in some period of time down the road. You would also get a variant-specific booster that we'll have to see kind of how things go. But it is important to get the boosters that are available now as we have this uncertainty. And with winter coming and holidays, the boosters certainly will help protect us from severe disease and death. So I shouldn't cancel my appointment tomorrow. You should still get your booster, yes. My next headline I want to read for you is from CNN, and it says the first cases of Omicron variant identified around the world. And the article lists case numbers from Hong Kong to Nigeria, from the U.S. and the U.K. to Japan and Israel. Is it important to keep tracking where this variant is or should we just assume it's basically everywhere at this point? Yes, it's probably much more widespread than we appreciate just because, you know, it takes time for people to catch up and really start looking for it. And we certainly need wider spread surveillance, and it's unequal across geographic regions currently. There is value in understanding where it is just as we start to think about what the spread pattern may be, just understanding that transmissibility. You know, we'll get information about where people have been, who they've been in contact with. So understanding where we're seeing this is of importance, but it's very likely much more widespread than we realize, yes. That kind of brings me to my next headline from Reuters, which is that South Africa says it's being punished for early COVID variant detection. I think this has a lot to do with countries announcing travel bans against South Africa. In your opinion, why is this story important? Yeah, so they have a robust surveillance program in place where they are doing the sequencing. Not everyone is doing this at the level they are. They're working at a very high level. It's certainly a service that they're doing to all of us, getting this information out, letting us know about the variants so that people then can start to prepare. So it is a service. And I do think that there has been somewhat of a stigma attached to it that because of that now, stay away from them when, in fact, we know it is other places and we don't know the origin specifically, but they are working at a high level and they're doing a service. I want to get to my final headline, which is again from the Washington Post, and it says the White House details strategies to combat Delta and Omicron variants. Those were announced really recently. What do you make of them if you've seen what the White House has just put out? And is that enough? 
Yeah, I think certainly will help. So the big thing is really encouraging vaccination of the unvaccinated and also the boosters, making the boosters readily available, making testing more available. That's certainly key. So if we're getting rapid testing, either more affordable for people to do at home or that's covered by insurance, as is noted, then that would be very useful. So I think ramping up testing, making testing more available to people is a key part of this and pushing the boosters, certainly making the boosters more available and really encouraging people that all of these things will help. Dr. Bumpus, is there anything else you're hearing about Omicron or getting texts from people about that you want to correct the record on? Well, I think just that, that it's not time to panic. I think that we understand a lot about how to prevent the spread of COVID or SARS-CoV-2 and then people getting COVID-19. I think that we know a lot about making sure that people are tested and vaccinated and the ways that we can really prevent the spread. So all of that knowledge is going to help us, whatever we find out about this variant. So this is not time to panic. This is time, though, to fall on our public health measures and really make sure that we talk to our friends and family over the holidays, your unvaccinated friends and family, talk to them about getting vaccinated, talk to folks about getting their boosters, make sure that, you know, as we're gathering indoors during holidays, try to ventilate, know everyone's vaccination status, make sure that we're just being really, I think, as strong as we can about carrying forward those public health measures that we've put in place. That's really good advice. And, you know, this isn't March 2020. We know a lot more now. So I think it's good to keep that in mind. Dr. Bumpus, thank you for skimming the headlines with us. Thank you. All right, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, the deadly school shooting in Michigan at Oxford High School. That's about an hour north of Detroit. An alleged lone gunman, a 15-year-old student, is in custody at this hour. Here's the context. On Tuesday, a 15-year-old student opened fire at Oxford High School in Michigan, killing four students and injuring at least seven. The gunman was arrested at the scene. Oxford's sheriff says, while a motive remains unknown, the suspect's father had purchased the gun just days prior, and the suspect himself posted images of the gun leading up to the shooting. Oxford law enforcement also acknowledged rumors that there had been other warning signs, including kids staying home from school because of fears of violence, but says the police department wasn't made aware of any looming threats. This shooting also comes less than two weeks after the Department of Justice paid out $130 million to families of victims of another school shooting three years ago in Parkland, Florida. The reason? Parents said the FBI knew that the gunman in Parkland was, quote, going to explode. But the FBI didn't act on the tip before 17 students were killed. So while many acknowledge that there's a school shooting epidemic in the U.S., there also seems to be another problem, that warning signs of potential violence are often overlooked. All right, next headline. A day after Twitter CEO and co-founder Jack Dorsey stepped down this week, the company, now under new leadership, has announced a controversial new policy. The social platform, home to hot takes and Russian bots, said they're no longer going to allow sharing photos or videos of private individuals without their permission. Basically, if someone shares a photo of you and you're not a celeb or famous person, you can report it to Twitter and they'll supposedly take it down. This new rule is aimed at curbing harassment online, but has a lot of people saying, how exactly is this gonna work? Here's Tatum Harper, a technology reporter from the Washington Post. 
this won't apply to public figures. And according to Twitter, that includes people like police officers who work in the public sphere. It also includes people who are behaving badly in public. And presumably it will also include people like politicians and government officials whose behavior is uh, newsworthy. So basically it's leaving an image up even if it doesn't have the subject's consent, somehow serves the public interest or is newsworthy, it'll stay up even if that person reports it. But the tricky thing here is it's really hard to define what's in the public interest, right? People were kind of in a flurry yesterday. People on both sides of the political aisle felt that this policy could potentially you know, be applied unevenly. People on the right were saying, well, this is going to be used to silence conservative media as they share photos or videos of maybe people destroying property during a protest, whereas people who may, maybe lean left were saying this is going to be used to squash videos of police brutality and other discriminatory behavior. But even if this sounds like a major move by a tech company to give people more privacy tools, Harper thinks its aim is to prevent a narrower type of online abuse. It's in line with moves that social platforms have made in the last year to take a more active role in what pops up on the platform. So then the narrowing our focus to Twitter specifically, Twitter has gotten a lot of criticism for failing to protect, especially women, minorities, and activists from harassment online and doxing. So according to the company, this policy is aimed at that group in particular. Of course, there are plenty of people who kind of surmised that it will be used in some sketchy ways. But I think that Twitter is responding to some problems on its platform, but it kind of remains to be seen how effective this particular policy will be. And our final headline this week. Well, it was an emotional day at the sex trafficking trial of British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell. Here's what you need to know. Maxwell was previously the partner of Jeffrey Epstein, a financier and convicted sex offender. Epstein committed suicide in prison in 2019, where he was waiting to stand trial after being accused of sex trafficking. Now it's Maxwell's turn in the hot seat. She's been accused of helping Epstein set up encounters with underage girls. One alleged victim told courts this week that Maxwell made her feel safe, taking her on shopping trips, asking about her family and school, before instructing her on how Epstein liked to be massaged. The accuser also noted that Maxwell allegedly sometimes participated in Epstein's sexual activities with underage girls. Maxwell's defense is arguing that witnesses are just after cash and that their memories are likely to be flawed because some accusations are 25 years old. Maxwell's attorneys also say she's being scapegoated amid public anger that Epstein died before he could stand trial properly. It could be a while before we learn Maxwell's fate. At least four accusers are due to testify and the trial is supposed to carry on for a full six weeks. But given some of the bombshell details revealed in just the first few days of this trial, including an allegation from Epstein's former pilot that Donald Trump and Bill Clinton once flew on Epstein's notorious private plane, We'll probably keep talking about this trial before it's wrapped up. This week, the most consequential abortion case in decades made its way to the Supreme Court. We likely won't know for months how the Supremes rule, but by listening to how the nine justices talked about this case in oral arguments on Wednesday, we can get a sense about whether a woman's right to choose is likely to remain the law of the land. Before we do that, though, let's quickly recap this case, which is called Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, 
and why it's at the Supreme Court in the first place. It's a story that goes back to 2018. Mississippi's governor signed the U.S. most restrictive abortion rule into law on Monday. The law bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, even in cases of incest or rape. A Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks was thrown out, with a judge ruling that it unequivocally violates women's constitutional rights. So now the court has agreed to take another look at that very issue. The U.S. Supreme Court is going to take up a Mississippi abortion case. Supporters of the Mississippi law are asking for Roe v. Wade to be overturned, mm-hmm. and they want this to be the vehicle to do it. The constitutional right to abortion now under existential threat. That Mississippi law was signed back in 2018, and it's a direct challenge to two landmark Supreme Court decisions. The first you've heard of, and the second maybe you haven't. The first is Roe v. Wade, the 1973 ruling in which the Supreme Court ruled that women have a constitutional right to an abortion. And the second is Planned Parenthood v. Casey from 1992. That ruling set a new standard for abortion rights, looking at whether a law causes undue burden or obstacles for women trying to get an abortion before the fetus attains viability. Viability in practical terms usually means 24 weeks, which is in direct conflict with Mississippi's law banning abortions after 15 weeks. The Mississippi law has already made it a lot harder to get an abortion there. The state of nearly three million people now only has one abortion clinic. And the threat to Roe v. Wade posed by this case isn't being overhyped. Former President Donald Trump had promised to appoint Supreme Court justices he thought opposed the constitutional right to an abortion. And after Trump succeeded in placing justices Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett on the court, experts think abortion opponents may now be in the majority. And if Roe v. Wade is overturned, 26 states are expected to make abortion illegal. 12 of those states have already passed abortion ban laws. So the outcome of this case is about way more than Mississippi. To help us break down how the Supreme Court looks like it might rule on this huge case, we're joined by friend of the show, Seema Mohapatra. Before we get into any of the specific moments from oral arguments, we'd been hearing that the Supreme Court now might have such a strong conservative majority that after nearly 50 years, the right to an abortion in America is now facing its most serious threat. And I'm curious, after listening to oral arguments, do you think those are valid concerns? Absolutely. I think that any question that people had about whether this court was going to try to take an incremental approach and maybe weaken the abortion right, but not completely get rid of it. I think a lot of those hopes were quelched because of the way that the oral arguments went. And it seemed like the conservative judges, which are six of the judges, were pretty aggressive in their questioning. Of course, you can't ever predict how the court is going to rule. But I think that there is a real concern that Roe v. Wade, as we know it, is really gone, no matter if they say that they're actually overruling it or if they merely just gut it where there's not the same kind of protections and states can have laws like the Mississippi law. I want to play a clip for you, and then I want to get your take on it. This is the Solicitor General of Jackson, Mississippi, Scott Stewart, defending Mississippi's law to Justice Sonia Sotomayor. That law bans abortions before a fetus is viable, And it sounds like Stewart is trying to explain why he doesn't think that's a problem. The fundamental problem with viability, it's not really something that rests on on science so much. It's that viability is not tethered to anything in the Constitution, in history, or tradition. It's a quintessentially legislative line. 
legislature could think that viability makes sense as a, as a place to draw the line, but it's quite reasonable for a legislature to draw Council, the line elsewhere. there's so much that's not in the Constitution, including the fact that we have the last word. Before I get your take on what was just said, can you skim for me what they're talking about? So what they're talking about is that this line of viability that was drawn by the Roe versus Wade case, that a state cannot restrict pre-viability abortions, that has been upheld by the Supreme Court every time that it has come up, and it has come up before. But it seems that now either viability is gone or Roe versus Wade is gone itself. And so that is because of the questioning of the justices. They seem very skeptical about the viability line. And Justice Sotomayor in that clip was basically making the point that just because something is not in the Constitution doesn't mean that it is not proper and that a lot of our constitutional law is derived from case law and in interpreting this Constitution, including the privacy right where we get our right to abortion. Okay, I understand Sotomayor's point on constitutionality here, but what was the bigger takeaway from all the exchanges you heard about viability? So when Roe v. Wade was decided 50 years ago, obviously the state of medical care was different. And so the end of second trimester was deemed where a fetus could then survive outside the body. But since then, now the line is about 24 weeks and it changes depending on what the medical care is like. So from 28 weeks, it's gone to 24 weeks. The Mississippi law that's a question in Dobbs is basically restricting anything after 15 weeks, which is still nine weeks earlier, which is quite a big change. And a fetus cannot survive outside the body, is not viable at 15 weeks. The conservative justices in this court from the questioning don't appear to care about that. I want to play you another clip and get your take on it again, which is an exchange about undue burden. It's between Justice Neil Gorsuch and the attorney representing Jackson Women's Health Organization, Julie Reichelman. If the court were to in this case, step past viability and apply undue burden, the undue burden test to uh, regulations prior to viability, you would agree with the other side, I, I think, that that's not a workable standard. Is, is, that, is that a fair understanding of what you're, you're telling the court? No, Your Honor. I, I you believe, think that would be workable? I believe, that, if I may clarify, I believe the undue burden test has been workable for regulations. So... I heard a lot of words, a lot of legal jargon. What is undue burden? What are they talking about here? Okay, so undue burden is the test that in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was the case after Roe v. Wade, that basically said a state can have regulations that restrict abortion or make abortion more difficult as long as it's not an undue burden for a woman who is seeking an abortion. And so that has been the standard. The viability has been a standard from Roe v. Wade. And so in this exchange, Gorsuch is basically saying what exactly? Yeah, it seems to be that he's asking, can we get rid of viability and instead use the undue burden standard and just look at whether it's an undue standard for women and not worry about the fact that it is way before viability. The response to that is that you really need both viability and undue burden. Yeah, he's kind of like, okay, so can we cut Roe and keep Casey? 
Right. He's trying to basically trap her, Julie Reichelman, to accept his hypothetical that the court would make an undue burden standard without a viability standard. And she kind of did not agree with that and explained that you need both. I want to turn it over to when Amy Coney Barrett took the mic at oral arguments. And I just want to hear what you make of where she's taking this line of questioning. I have a question about the safe haven laws. It doesn't seem to me to follow that pregnancy and then parenthood are all part of the same burden. And so it seems to me that the choice more focused would be between, say, the ability to get an abortion at 23 weeks or the state requiring the woman to go 15, 16 weeks more and then terminate parental rights at the conclusion. Why, why didn't you address the safe haven laws and why don't they matter? Just as a reminder for our audience, what are safe haven laws? So safe haven laws are laws that after pregnancy, if you take your child to any of these spaces, it could be a fire department, it could be a hospital, you would be able to leave your child there and not be prosecuted for child abandonment. So it sounds like Amy Coney Barrett says, okay, because safe haven laws exist, we don't need abortion because you could take the child to term and you don't have to be responsible for it. Is that right? Yes. So the fact Justice Coney Barrett even asked about the safe haven laws was a very bad sign to most listeners um, of the court because it emphasized the fact that she did not seem to understand the fact that forced pregnancy or carrying a child is a burden. Her point was that if every state has these safe haven laws where you can basically give up your baby, then there's really not a problem for women. And that is a real concern if that is her attitude, because anybody that has been pregnant and anybody really that has any empathy for anyone that has been pregnant knows that having somebody being forced to go through a pregnancy is a harm in itself. And she seemed to imply that abortion is really an avoidance of parenting instead of the fact that you are carrying a fetus for nine months. And it kind of gives a window into what she might think about whether women have a right to an abortion at all. Well, so there wasn't really much of a secret about this. She has signed on to public letters against abortion pre-being on the court We know that she is very much anti-abortion. There was a question about whether this court, and especially her being on this court, would just merely incrementally decrease abortion rights rather than completely gut it. But that question made everybody concerned that the future of Roe is very doubtful. Yeah, it's kind of unbelievable just stepping back and thinking, you know, if this case was being heard three years ago or four years ago, how different this outcome would be and how one person joining a court can really change the future of women's right to health care in a lot of ways. I'm curious before we let you go, obviously there's a lot of focus on this case and it looks like if Roe v. Wade is overturned or significantly gutted in the coming months, is there any world in which Congress steps in? Like what other avenues besides the court are there or are there none? I mean, theoretically, if we had the will in Congress, there could be some kind of Women's Health Protection Act, and there have been at least proposals of that kind. I will just frankly say that I don't have hope that that will occur (laughs) in this Congress. 
the margins are just not there. So I do think that really what we're going to have to see is where states that are protective of abortion rights are going to be the safe havens. And we're going to be relying a lot on basically self-managed abortion. We're going to be relying on abortion funds to help people to go to other states in order to get care. That's the kind of world we're talking about because a lot of these states are having laws that don't have rape or incest exceptions. And that's what we're going to be seeing. I wish I had a happier spin on this, but I really don't. No, we appreciate your honesty and not everything has a happy spin. Seema, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Skim This listeners, I'm Bridget Armstrong, and I want to make sure you know about another podcast that I host that you should absolutely hit follow on. It's called Pop Cultured with the Skim. Every Tuesday, we go deep on a culture story you need to know about. You get caught up on all the deets you miss, but you also get the wider context, like whether or not those Travis Scott lawsuits are going to stick, or what's going to happen now that Britney's finally free. This week, we're remembering the legacy of an innovator who had a huge impact on the fashion world, Virgil Abloh. You can catch Pop Culture with the Skim right here where you're listening to Skim This. Catch you Tuesday. On behalf of a grateful nation, but an even prouder people, we therefore present to you the designee for National Hero of Barbados. Ambassador Robin Rihanna Fenty. May you continue to shine like a diamond. If you're wondering at what kind of event Rihanna might be declared a national hero, the answer is one of the most historic events in the history of Barbados. On Tuesday, the Caribbean island became an independent republic, cutting ties with Queen Elizabeth and the rest of the British monarchy. Prince Charles even showed up to watch Barbados break things off with his family, close to 400 years after the crown colonized the island. If Rihanna, Queen Elizabeth, and independent republic sounds like a confusing word cloud, here's what went down in Barbados in 60 seconds. The island of Barbados is known by a lot of people now for its beautiful beaches. But in the 1600s, the island was colonized by the British and transformed into a major hub of sugar production. One notable historian called Barbados the birthplace of British slave society, noting that Britain's history as a prosperous colonial superpower was in large part achieved because of the suffering of African slaves brought to the island. Barbados finally won independence from Great Britain in 1966, but it picked a system of governance in which Queen Elizabeth got to hang on as its mostly ceremonial head of state. That is, until this week, when the Union Jack was lowered for the last time and Barbados swore in its first president. Ladies and gentlemen, Her Excellency Dame Sandra Prunella Mason, President of Barbados. While some in Barbados felt this week's break with the royals was overdue, the country is far from the only one that's long held on to its colonial ties. Several Caribbean nations like Grenada, Jamaica, and St. Lucia still have Queen Elizabeth as their head of state, as do countries as geographically spread out as Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And Great Britain still has 14 overseas territories it directly controls. 
So while the queen had to fully let go of one of the former British Empire's possessions this week, one old saying remains true, that the sun still never sets on the British Empire. How'd we do? Want us to skim another topic from the week's news? Send us your suggestion to audio at theskim.com. Speaking of escaping the royal family. Yesterday, you arrived after the queen. I got lost. Oh, how could you get lost? You've lived over the hill for years. That's a clip from the movie Spencer, starring Kristen Stewart. It tells the story of Princess Diana, but not the story you might be familiar with. It takes place over Christmas weekend at the Sandringham Estate and remains intensely focused on Princess Diana over the course of the film. It's not like The Crown, where you sort of see all the various politics. This is a very internal story. It's a ghost story where she is quite literally haunted by the ghost of Anne Boleyn and really threads these metaphors about the sort of intransience of the past in the royal family and how it's so hard to escape. That's Esther Zuckerman, a film critic for Thrillist. She told us Spencer was definitely on her watch list. I was really excited for Spencer to come out because Pablo Lorraine is one of my favorite directors working today. And he had made Jackie, which is another really fascinating take on a very famous woman. He and screenwriter Stephen Knight really apply almost a horror lens to the story of Princess Diana and Kristen Stewart is really incredible in it. What she's doing is she is not so much trying to sort of perfectly imitate Di, but really sort of inhabit this feeling of claustrophobia that she might be experiencing. And she's obviously sort of nailing certain mannerisms, the way her head's tilted and the voice. It seems they're circling just me, not you, just me. Most of the film, it's sort of this almost jazz interpretation of her. I mean, even the score is by Johnny Greenwood. is this really sort of jazzy sort of scream of a score. I think even if you're not sort of a royal obsessive, you'll be really interested in it. Kristen Stewart isn't the only Hollywood leading lady portraying an important female protagonist. There's also Gaga in the newly released House of Gucci. I don't consider myself a particularly ethical person but I'm fair. House of Gucci, the story that it uses as its jumping off point is the story of how Patrizia Reggiani, who married Maurizio Gucci, an heir to the Gucci fortune, ended up having him murdered, essentially. That is, I guess, a spoiler for the movie a little bit, but not really, it's in the trailer. So it's this weird, love story between these two people, but then it sort of tries to tell the story of the entire Gucci empire. It's directed by Ridley Scott, who obviously is a legend of film. Zuckerman said, despite an all-star cast, this movie is basically carried by Lady Gaga. Here's the thing about House of Gucci. I think Lady Gaga is amazing in it. She is over the top, certainly. She's doing this thick Italian accent that she reportedly spent a lot of time using even when they were not filming. But she's so magnetic on screen. It's a real sort of like old-fashioned Hollywood movie star performance. It's time to take out the trash. Aldo and Paolo, they're poison. They're an embarrassment to this company. The trouble with the movie is that you almost want it to be more 
just the story of her and Maurizio, played by Adam Driver. And then the film, which is almost three hours long, takes all these detours to sort of get into the business of Gucci. I've been the Gucci all my life. It is an empire. You can help the family. Gucci's not exciting, and everybody knows it. At least it's my name, sweetie. Our name, sweetie. What Gucci, the fashion empire, means, you know, there's this whole plot with Paolo Gucci, played by Jared Leto, in this sort of, like, extreme performance that I can't recommend, but I did find funny, possibly unintentionally. So it's a movie with flaws, but I will say like, if you are a fan of Lady Gaga's, and even if you're not a fan of Lady Gaga's, she is a true sort of movie star actress. Like she is so compelling on screen that it's really worth it. And if you're thinking, what's up with these accents? Zuckerman said, Twitter has been having a field day. Jared Leto is doing Mario, as in the video game character. These are just mock-ups. I can't afford to get serious. And if you're just looking for some eye candy... Her costumes are incredible. They're so good. <laughs> While Stuart and Gaga play two hugely influential cultural icons, there's another movie that gives us some insight into the lives of two of the biggest stars in sports. Venus and Serena gonna shake up this world. King Richard is a really interesting sort of take on the story directed by Renardo Marcus Green. It does focus on the Williams sisters by way of their father, Richard Williams, who is a dynamic, fascinating, very, very complicated person. I think one of my criticisms of the movie, which I wrote about on Thrillist, is that it is sort of trapped between the being this like very interesting character study of this sort of like very complicated man and this sort of inspirational sports story about the rise of the Williams sisters. And I mean, I think what you learn about them is through sort of their father's intense training regimen and his sort of singular focus in making them into tennis stars and how sort of he did that in spite of the racist institution of tennis where they were occupying. It really is more about the world they grew up in than it is about the girls themselves. Uh, so you sort of see them as kids and you see their drive, but it is more focused on their father and the way that their father sort of laid a path for them. So three movies about four really important women. But if you only have time to see just one... For me, it'd probably be Spencer. I do think it's the biggest artistic achievement of any of these films. Boys! I want to take you home. I'm not moving from this spot until they come to me. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. This episode was engineered by Peter Bonaventure. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcasts. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. 